0: And there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today.
1: December seventh Earth two nineteen forty one. A world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war.
0: United States of America was suddenly and deliberately
1: attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents... The The All-Star Squadron. We are back with another exciting, thrill-packed, semi-coherent episode of Tales of the JSA. <laughs> this is actually episode 45 of the show. Um, I was about to give the date out, like I know what date this is coming.
0: <laughs> Eventually.
1: My name is Michael Bailey.
0: And I'm Zatanna.
1: <laughs> Suddenly I'm no longer attracted to Zatanna. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, for, for for those of you with keen ears, you will be noticing uh, both in this, uh, this episode and in the previous one, and for the next three after this, that we have different music playing here. Uh, I've actually thrown in the opening music to the uh, score to 13 days, or the first track on the album, at least, um, which ties into part of the plot elements of this uh, this uh, storyline. Mm-hmm. Also it's it's an awesome awesome score. It's a
0: great movie too.
1: Oh, it's a Oh, man, I love that movie. Uh current Batman from uh under the red hood and the young justice uh Animated series. It's on Cartoon oh, Network. Oh, is he
0: doing Batman on Young Justice too?
1: Yeah, Bruce Greenwood is. Oh, on
0: Young I did not know that. Okay, now that gives me another reason I need to, to watch that show. Uh, I've been
1: meaning be, to catch it and I just haven't be, seen it yet. You're going to be completely disappointed in Superboy. <laughs> oh, really? I think they oh. made him a bruiser. What, isn't he though? No, not really. Oh, okay. <laughs> not well, to me. He's oh, the right. fun kid. He's almost like the Spider Man. of. Uh, I'm just remembering Carl Kessel's. Work on the character. Ah,
0: uh, okay. See, I, um, I never read a whole lot of that, despite my meaning to. I just never, never made it to it.
1: But um, no, Bruce, uh, starring Bruce Greenwood as JFK and Kevin Costner. In I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I either like Kevin Costner in a movie or I hate Kevin Costner in a movie, and this was a movie where I really, really liked him uh, in it, and it's just just a fantastic tense movie. Even though you know everything's going to be okay, uh, Mr. Didkovich from the second and third Spider-Man film is in it, as, yeah. is, uh, as is the guy that played Kirk Connors.
0: A lot of the guys from Apollo 13 slash From the Earth to the Moon are mm-hmm. in this, too. And I, I really like that, because that, that whole movie you know, granted it's about the Cuban Missile Crisis, but it it all sort of ties into my interest and fascination with that whole era of the Apollo program and the space race and all that sort of thing. So it's, I I really like it. I I have no idea how good or bad that movie did at the box office. I've always had the the feeling, though, that it, it didn't do very well, and I think it's because of costner being in it at a time when he was still kind of like box office poison Mm -hmm. you know he'd had that that string of like just crap movies that didn't perform at all and so i think people think it's a kevin costner vehicle and they avoided it but it's really not a kevin costner film i mean yeah he's in it and he's arguably the biggest name in it but the movie's not about him it's about the events of the time and yeah, just a fantastic movie. And if you wanna get up to speed on one of the major elements of this issue, this chapter of this storyline we're covering, um, yeah, check that movie out because I, I gotta be honest, I-, I kinda breeze past that in my upcoming synopsis. So, you know, I make mention of it, but I do not go into it in the depth that it has gone into in the story itself.
1: Alrighty. Speaking of the story, <laughs> what I just... <laughs> no,
0: that was a big old yawn there.
1: That was, was was that a yawn? I was actually just breathing. I apologize about that like big ol' yawn. yawn. I apologize. It's not
0: bullshit a canard.
1: No, I, I I saw it in the theater. Oh, did you really? Yeah, uh, Bored the piss out of my wife because she doesn't like such films. Uh, but when I saw the trailer, I was like, "This looks kind of badass." So I went to see it in the theater, and I really liked it. And I bought the. DVD when it first came out. The DVD is just chock full of great special features. There's like a 48 minute documentary on everything leading up to the Cuban Missile Crisis and why it happened.
0: Wow. See, I've uh, never seen the DVD. I I, uh, I have to try to get myself a copy of that. I'd, I'd like to see that, especially if it's got bonus features and stuff, because I really do like that movie a lot. Well, here's, here's another fanboy connection. Is uh, I just thought of this anybody out there listening who has seen the fan film um, oh shit, what was the name of it? Help me out here Mike, it was the one where Batman's dead and and Grayson that was the name of it, Grayson. If you've seen the fan film Grayson, the part where he's running through the park and he throws a batarang and then climbs a tree and catches it, the music that's playing under that part is from this movie 13 Days.
1: Yeah, the same guy, uh, Trevor Jones, I think his name is?
0: Uh, Uh, Yeah, I think so.
1: It did Last of the Mohicans. Mm-hmm. And if you play that first track off of the album and then play some of the Last of the Mohicans running music, it, yeah, you can tell it's the same guy.
0: Let's see, I'm looking that <laughs> up real quick here, and just to be sure. Yeah, it is Trevor Jones. I'm trying to think of what else. I want to say he did The Dark Crystal, but I may be thinking of. Dark Crystal is by Trevor Jones. Yeah, it is. It's the same guy. Yeah.
1: Dark Crystal. I refuse to watch that movie anymore.
0: Really? Why is that?
1: You get to the point where the the, the little main guy goes, and he's going to go see the the ugly witch woman, mm-hmm. and, and, and he thinks in his head, you know, well maybe maybe her type eats my type, and I'm like, yeah, your mentor, the guy that just died like five minutes ago. <laughs> uh, wisest person on the planet is going to send you somewhere to get eaten and I could have buy into the film after
0: that uh, Okay.
1: plus I'm just it's not one of my favorite Henson movies
0: <laughs> oh I just, uh, I just remember he also did a, a favorite score of mine he did uh, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen mm. that's despite how you may feel about the film because I know a lot of people really hate that film that's an excellent score
1: I don't
0: See, I like the movie, too, but I'm just saying.
1: You, and know. you me, and nobody else.
0: Yeah, I know. I know. What is up with that? That's a great movie.
1: A lot of people think it sucks.
0: Well, screw them and the horse they rode in on.
1: All righty. You ready to give us a synopsis of <laughs> this issue?
0: I sure am. All right. This time around, we are looking at Chapter 2 of the Crisis on Earth Prime storyline. This is All-Star Squadron, number 14, the October 1982 issue cover by joe kubert and he's pretty much aping the style set up by perez with the first issue we've got all the little tiny headshots all the way around the cover um all the same characters as before except the positions have changed now you've got the uh, all-star squadron on the left justice league of america on the bottom and the justice current justice society of america on the right hand side the inset pick is of per degaton and he's shaking a uh an hourglass and inside of the all-stars i really don't care for it i like the the layout of the picture i just again sorry i just don't i just really don't like
1: the fact are. that superman and aquaman don't have uh, pupils
0: oh you're right it looks kind of creepy with superman not having any pupils too uh let's see original cover price 60 cents wow. roy thomas is the right yeah i know <laughs> Right, Thomas is the writer. Adrian Gonzalez and Jerry Ordway are artists. Ben Oda-Letterer, Carl Gafford colorist, Len Wein editor, Jerry Conway listed as plot consultant. And the uh, title of the actual issue is The Mystery Men of October. So our story starts not with the cliffhanger that we got last time with the All Stars uh, walking in on the JLA and the JSA headquarters, but rather with our man, the Flash, Phantom Lady, Green Lantern, Plastic Man, Johnny Quick, Wonder Woman, the Shining Knight, Liberty Bell, the Atom, Hawkman, and Robot Man. Sieg Heiling and swearing fealty to Per Degaton. While a crowd of thousands watch, the despot calls from his throne, let the games begin, and thrills to the sight of the All-Stars battling each other, all gladiatorial arena style, to the death. The bloodthirsty crowd cheers them on until one voice cuts through the tumult, that of Professor Z telling the All-Stars not to battle each other, but instead to take out their real foe. Stirred from their trance, the All-Stars converge on Degaton, who panics, screaming that he won't be defeated, screaming, not again, and screaming as he awakes. Yes, it has all been a nightmare, a very vivid nightmare that suddenly snaps the lowly lab assistant into full awareness. He remembers now his many battles and defeats at the hands of the JSA, Because of his gimmick and the nature of time travel, his defeats have meant that none of his schemes ever really happened. Thus, neither he nor his enemies have remembered any of it until now. Armed with this knowledge of past glories and failures, Degaton returns once again to Professor Z's lab and murders the scientist with no preamble at all, steals his time machine, and sets out to conquer the 40s by utilizing the weapons of the future, the 1980s. Traveling to 1982, Degaton encounters a slight pull, and upon arrival, uh, excuse me, and upon arrival, quickly discovers that while he has indeed reached the future, it isn't his future. This is Earth Prime, where the superheroes that have been the bane of his existence are merely comic book characters. Returning to his stolen time machine, he finds himself a victim of the time storm that he had encountered previously. That sent him, or excuse me, that prevented him from traveling to the years just prior to Pearl Harbor Day. Slinging sideways through the uh, time-space continuum, the Madman finds himself in the dolly esque dimension of limbo. There, we learn of the events that happened prior to JLA 207, in which. Degaton penetrates the prison bubble and meets the captive crime syndicate. They instantly attack the time-traveling tyrant, uh, but he's not as stupid as he appears and renders himself intangible. So, the syndicators switch tactics and make all nice. All friends now, Degaton agrees to free the super fiends if they'll promise to do a little job for him in exchange. So later, aboard Degaton's version of the TARDIS, Ultraman finally clues us in as to the order of his appearances with a reference to his recent escape from and subsequent re re imprisonment in the bubble in the pages of DC Comics Presents Annual Number One. A story that you can hear Mike and me discuss in Back to the Bins Number 72, by the way. And he also mentions the recent adventures of three of the other syndicators in Secret Society of Super-Villains, adventures that we have yet to cover, but I'd like to at some point. Degaton tells his reluctant partners about his latest dastardly plan. He has brought them all to Earth Prime, specifically to the year 1962, right in the heart of the Cuban Missile Crisis in order to have his new playmates steal for him a whole shitload of nuclear missiles. Did I say nuclear or nuclear?
1: You said nuclear.
0: Nuclear, okay. I have to, I have to watch myself on that, because when I was younger, I think I used to actually say nuclear, and I understand that that's uh, something that a lot of people like to uh, pick on these days, so I'm, I'm conscious of that now. This is accomplished in short order with no hitches, after which the bad guys split dooming that Earth to atomic destruction. Now armed with dozens of warheads, the pseudo-Nazi sets course for home and the conquest of 1940's Earth 2. At that moment, the syndicators silently attack, but again, Degaton isn't as stupid as he looks. He anticipated betrayal, and the super foes are hurled from this time-space dimension and into the pages of the first chapter of this crossover, JLA number 207. Meanwhile... Well, sorta. On Earth Two, the year is again 1942. As Johnny Quick, Liberty Bell, and Firebrand arrive back in good old New York City, just in time to throw down with Magne- uh, the Magneto wannabe, nuclear, <laughs> the uh, magnetic marauder. <laughs> this guy is oh, whatever. a
1: tool. Yeah.
0: So Johnny Quick, as usual, rushes into the fray and then finds himself completely outclassed and in a lot of trouble. Steel, or rather Commander Steel, and Robot Man show up to lend a hand, but thanks mainly to their metallic makeups, they bungle the job and Nuclear gets away. Embarrassed, Liberty Bell suggests the All-Stars get off the street and hold an informal meeting. Armed with the keys to the old JSA headquarters, Liberty Bell leads her new team into the meeting rooms and an unexpected encounter with... The Justice League of America, and we're left with pretty much the same <laughs> cliffhanger we had last
1: time. So, uh... well, before we get into the uh, personal notes, I guess I should say we got uh-huh. the uh, the notes from All Star Companion Volume Two. Uh-huh. Uh huh. One is the title "The Mystery Men of October" is a play on the name uh-huh. "The Missiles of October." of a historical docudrama made for TV in 1974, based on Robert F. Kennedy's book, Thirteen Days, a memoir of the Cuban Missile Crisis. In the 1940s, before the term superhero was in wide usage, costume heroes were often referred to as mystery men. Mystery men, yep. Which I prefer. I always kind of like that in the post-crisis world, where they weren't superheroes until Superman showed up. I like that too. That they were mystery men. Uh, one day in 1947, Digaton suddenly recalls his pre- previous defeats a few weeks earlier in 1947 in 331 BC and in 1941, while his quote unquote erstwhile foes have forgotten them all. And he hopes to use that knowledge to triumph this time. Part of Roy Thomas's influence uh, of this storyline was a well-known literary essay on his favorite novel, Catch-22, by Joseph Heller, which postulates that the book's events are not told chronologically except for the deeds of the unscrupulous Milo Minderbinder, whose timeline follows a linear path. The analysis has been shown to be not 100% accurate, but that's neither here nor there. Hmm. <clears throat> The Crime Syndicate of America had debuted in the JLA JSA team up in Justice League of America twenty nine to thirty. Since then, Ultraman had fought and then re-imprisoned between dimensions by Superman of Earths one and two. And DC Comics presents the number one annual, number one. Excuse me.
0: Can I can I interrupt you for just a second? I, I think it's important to point out, by the way, that we never see that. We're never privy to that. At the end of that story, he was simply knocked out, you know, in some undisclosed manner by the Lex Luthor of of his world, but uh, we never saw him be re-imprisoned. This is where we actually learn that he was, so I just thought that was important to point out. <laughs> he got knocked the fuck out. Um. I'd still like to know how Luthor pulled that off, though. I really would.
1: <laughs> um... Which was just going on sale, while three of the group had previously escaped in Secret Society of Supervillains number thirteen to fourteen. Nuclear, the magnetic villain, the All Stars encounter in this issue, had appeared in only one published story in Wonder Woman number forty three, the September October nineteen fifty issue. And we will get more into that in All Star in the issue in the excuse me, in the episode covering All Star Squadron number sixteen. Uh, as we see the end of that fight, basically. And we get a whole bunch of information on nuclear uh, himself. Um, uh, Another note is, though U.S. President John F. Kennedy, Cuban Premier Fidel Castro, and Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev had only a few lines of dialogue, each in the five-part JLA-JSA squadron story arc, they were depicted as the central players in the October 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. Um... And they got some photos here that were taken of JFK on April 3rd of 1963. And then there is a photo of Castro and Khrushchev smiling for the cameras, <laughs> despite their frayed relationship. So, yep. And that's it for the historical stuff. Um, what is my first note? I hate the cover. Yeah. though <laughs> we kind of talked not about a, it. Already. Yeah, not a fan. The double page spread uh pages two and three of all of the All Stars saluting Degaton is awesome. Just like seriously, seriously awesome. I mean it epic in scope. You know, yeah, there's not too much detail on the people in the crowds, in fact, they're just kind of circles with little bodies under them. But uh it's still really cool to see and uh yeah, Jerry Ordway kinda of carries uh Carries this issue, and boy, Liberty Bell on page two has a little junk in that trunk, um, which I like to see. <laughs> good, meaties, good meaty, good meaty forties woman. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> did you want to do what we did last time and just talk, or as uh, is the I,
0: issue? I I gotta be honest. I'm looking at my notes here, and we pretty much covered. I think we covered everything. Uh, Except you know, I've got one toward the end. Just something else I wanted to plug real quick, but also um, I I feel like you know, I I purposely breezed. You know, I I tried to go quick with this synopsis because a lot happens in this issue. It's very very talky, but uh, um, you know, at the same rate, I didn't want you know the synopsis to be over long. But just in brief, the missile Cuban Missile Crisis. Because um, I'm sure that we've got you know listeners that that won't be terribly familiar with it. What what basically happened is that the USSR moved into Cuba and they put a bunch of nuclear missiles in Cuba, and the United States was like, "Hey, you got to take those out." And there was this giant standoff where the world very nearly went to nuclear war uh-huh. in in 1962. I, I don't. I feel like a lot of people aren't aware of that that came along after 1962. They're not. They don't realize how very close the world came to destruction in that year. And basically what happened was the, the U.S. pressured the USSR to take those missiles out of Cuba, which eventually did happen. What happens in this story, by Degaton having the crime syndicate steal those missiles, then Russia can't pull the missiles out. They, they can't ever provide any like proof that they remove them. And it follows up history on the on Earth Prime, and they do end up going to nuclear war, which is what the, the Justice Society, yeah, Justice Society witnessed in JLA two hundred seven when they arrived there in nineteen eighty two, and the world was all blown up.
1: It, it's so. the one big plot hole of this story, though. How's that? Okay, they have they have no way of knowing that th- that they pulled the missiles out. Right. Except by doing exactly what they did to find out that the missiles were there in the first place. Flying some U-2 spy, spy plane missions over Cuba.
0: Well, I guess they could, but I mean... Yeah, I mean, it, it's a little thin as far as, you know, well, we didn't see you take them away, so you didn't really take them away, so we're going to go to war. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that, but I'll give them that one. I mean, you know, we've got people well we don't have
1: much of a choice the story happens right it's (laughs) it's not like it's suddenly going to change because we.
0: (laughs) well what i meant was that you know it's not for me it wasn't a deal breaker it wasn't something i looked at you know i can look at and go okay i can't buy this story anymore which happens sometimes in funny books where something will just be a little bit beyond my suspension of disbelief you know
1: Um, I like the fact that the whole first scene was a dream, and that's what caused Degaton to remember everything. But I especially like the fact that he makes sure Dr. Z is dead before (laughs) leaving, since this guy's screwed up his plans before. Well, it's funny, because this is like the
0: umpteenth time that this scene is played out. This time, there's no screwing around. He just walks in and shoots the guy. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) Because before, it's always been like, You ran me down and made me feel like a fool and I'm going to take out my vengeance. Nope, this time he just walks in and he's like, hi there, boom, and blows him away.
1: (laughs) Especially since he goes, what are you talking about, you foolish little man? Yep. I'd shoot him too. My my other thing that happens in this issue that kind of irks me is that um, he realizes he's on Earth Prime, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And he knows that in Earth Prime, um, I guess these, you know, the superheroes, Superman, Batman, et all, are comic book characters. So instead of grabbing a few freaking issues as he's running to read the adventures and maybe figure out who these people really are, which to me would be a greater bit of information, he right. just runs away. My biggest problem, <clears throat> excuse me, with this issue is mainly, it doesn't really further the story along. Right. It just gives us the background of the stuff from the previous chapter, and that's not bad. I'm not saying it was a bad issue, especially with Jerry Ordway's artwork and his ability to just to draw historical figures to look like the people they actually are. Um, but, um, but it's just like all of this is set up to the previous issue and that's fine and all but it, it just, I didn't feel like I got anything else further out of the plot. It was right. just like, okay, here's what this happened and here's what this happened, okay let's go on with the story and we have a fight with uh, Nuclear the Magnetic uh, what does he call himself? The Magnetic Ma- Marauder. <sighs> he, <laughs> he looks <laughs> like the Golden Age Metallo. Is what he looks like. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> it's a goofy, damp costume. But still, they managed to sneak in some All-Star moments, as in with the cast of All-Star Squadron. You know, and the, the artwork was pretty awesome. Uh, the last page is cool as well. I I never really liked this costume for Zatanna uh, it's not like it has to be the fishnets, but at the same time, just not too hot on the...
0: Oh, I, I like... This is the Perez designed one, isn't it? Yeah. I like that outfit. Except the only thing I don't like is the Klingon head. I've never understood what the hell that thing was on her head.
1: The Klingon head? It
0: does. It, it looks like she's got the Klingon turtle, turtle head thing going on. <laughs>
1: does not it? Yes, it does. I'll agree with that. What is that thing? I don't know. It's like a beret or something.
0: I guess.
1: It's an affectation, go with it.
0: I guess so. You know, you would think, I mean, you know, if I was per degaton and I had this machine that could take me anywhere in time and space including alternate dimensions, I think the very first thing I would do is go get a comb. <laughs>
1: Are he saying that his hair is must?
0: It, it's yeah, he's got that goofy Dick Grayson, Jason Todd thing with the. Actually, Peter Parker had it too. It, it's like the bad part down the middle, but then it's it's too shaggy or something. I don't know. <laughs> Calm your damn hair, per Degaton. a ton. It's you know it's not. not let's go enough. to
1: a time period where I could take over easily and. You know, now the JSA doesn't know about anything because this guy's gonna shoot me. I mean, yeah, he made the he had the error of going to Earth Prime, but damn, that would be like the best place to go take over during World War II because there's no superheroes, right?
0: Well, I was just yeah, I I, I felt like your point I, I unfortunately got interrupted about the you know about him. Why didn't he grab some comics while he was there to learn more about his enemy? But also, that was my first thought: is why don't you take over this planet? You know. <laughs> Especially after, you know, he he leaves, he goes and he picks up and makes good with the with the crime syndicate. There is new buddies. He has them pull this heist. Why didn't he just go? Well, shit, I'll take over this one. There's no Superman here, you know. <laughs> but no, what does he do? He goes, you know, and he he decides he's going to mess around with the two planets that do have, you know, not only Superman but a bunch of other heroes. It's like, come on, dude, how stupid are you?
1: But uh, I do I do like the fact that the guy behind the newsstand isn't is only concerned that he's kind of acting crazy, not that he's dressed weirdly.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, he's he's got this like pseudo Nazi outfit on, and
1: uh, I, I mean, sure, if this is Atlanta Labor Day weekend, no one would give him a second thought because they would just assume he was in town for Dragon Con. But
0: <laughs> what year is this? This is '82. Right? Yeah, it's '82. Well, what is with the all right? Okay, page 8. That first inset panel, that guy's standing right behind Per Degaton. He's like 40 years out of date in his clothing style right there.
1: <laughs> but, um, like I said, not a bad issue, though. No. Uh, strong artwork, just just not my favorite chapter of this story. No. Um, there is a letter. <laughs> it's the last letter from the the letters page. That um, when I, I reread it, it just bugged the crap out of me. And, and the, there's always got to be the one asshole that wants to speak for a downtrodden group. <laughs> um, and usually that's okay because the downtrodden group needs to be spoken for. But well, I'm just I'm just gonna read the letter. It says, "Dear Mr. Thomas." I'm writing you in regards to the stories you have been writing for All-Star Squadron. To begin with, let me say that I consider you one of the top writers in comics today. Unfortunately, I have a complaint. Portraying Germans as Nazis has been a growing trend for many years now in motion pictures, television, magazines, and of late in your stories as well. The high point in terms of sheer popularity was probably the Holocaust series on NBC TV, which I consider to have been an extremely one-sided in my account. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no one denies the atrocities that were committed by all sides during the war but the per- persistent focus of historical balance uh, oh, excuse me but the persistent focus on the tragic fate of the jewish peoples in europe shows a blatant lack of historical balance it seems that to have become popular in the U.S. mass media to present Germans to the American peoples as Nazis. Brutal, vain, cynical, prejudiced, and above all, evil. Americans of uh, this simplistic portrayal reinforces stereotypes That defame all Americans of German origins. This type of publicity only provokes a cycle of antagonism and intolerance among ethnic and racial groups. German Americans have waited patiently for the pernicious campaigns to end, but since it hasn't, I felt... it. Into, uh, I felt it was time to speak out. I hope that you will take my comments into consideration as you write future stories of All Star Squadron. Maybe you could show some good Germans or create a German superhero against against what the Nazi Party believes in. Um, Hi, Neo G Mu- uh, Mueller from Costa Mesa, California. Okay.
0: Um, Hi, G Mueller. Yeah, he, he he's not a Nazi. <laughs> okay.
1: Okay. Um, one. Uh, in defense of the not even really going into roy thomas's uh comments but uh in, in defense of movies like raiders of the lost ark and uh this comic and anywhere where nazis are presented as as the bad guys it never really goes into what the german people are doing they're just going in under what the nazis are doing and in that case yeah, the Nazis were fucking evil. I'm sorry. I'm sure there were people that were just doing their job, that were just following orders. I mean, we've got a Pope right now that was in the Hitler youth, and everyone wanted to throw that up as oh, he must be, you know, a bad person because he was in a Hitler youth. But ever it was like being in the freaking Boy Scouts in the fifties and sixties. It's what you did. You know, it's not like you really had a choice to do it. But to To be like, well, everyone only talks about the Holocaust. Well, yeah, we're going to talk about when six million civilians were wiped off the face of the planet just because your boss was an asshole. I mean, seriously, are you fucking kidding me?
0: (laughs) Well, he says something in there about... uh... You know, when are people going to... Never, dude. You're never going to live this down, okay? I'm sorry to let you know this, but, uh, yeah, this is not something that, you know, people are just going to go, ah, that was, you know, 40 years ago, and who cares? Yeah, people care, dude. Yeah.
1: you know, and I'm glad he goes, no one denies that it happened, because there are two things... That's not true. (laughs) Because there are two things that piss me off. Um, One, the people that deny that it happened. But the other, and this is something I came across a couple of years ago, the people that say, well, it happened, but it wasn't as bad as everyone says it was, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is worse than saying it didn't happen.
0: Right. Oh, come on. It wasn't six million. It was only five and a half million. Oh, OK. Well, I mean, in that case, then forget it.
1: This may be an extreme example, but that's that's kind of like saying, telling a woman you were never raped, and then saying, "Well, you were raped, but at least he didn't beat you up too badly." We
0: were only raped a little bit. Come on.
1: I mean, it's just oh god, it just pisses me off, and and I I, I kind of understand where this guy is coming from because you know because
0: yeah, I mean yeah, you know, we were all Nazi youths at one time.
1: You know? <laughs> Well, no, because, you know, I guess to him, he he feels a a certain amount of pride in who his people are. But, you know, I have never seen a movie or television series that dealt with Nazis where the everyday man was, you know, just as evil as the Nazis were. You know, I I don't think I've ever seen that. Usually when Nazis are the bad guys, you got a bunch of guys in SS uniforms running around for someone to beat up or kill. You know, the fact that if I'm correct, and I know this is the way in Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes, the animated series, but that Nazis aren't the bad guys in the upcoming Captain America film, it's Hydra is standing in for the Nazis, kind of bothers the piss out of me and uh, from my understanding the reasoning behind it is is that you can't <laughs> this is the funny thing about this guy writing about how no one in, in, in wants to let the Germans live it down in Germany you really can't display swastikas or, or hate or anything that's considered hate speech or anything like that. So you couldn't show Captain America or this Avengers cartoon in Germany because you would have swastikas and stuff all over the place.
0: So Germany doesn't, they don't watch Raiders of the Lost Ark? Uh,
1: I guess that wasn't a consideration at the time. But anti-hate speech laws are extreme in Germany. I mean, they're they are off the charts. From what I understand, a lot of, of, uh, of uh, you know, like the, the heavier metal groups of Germany have a hard time because they can't display certain icono- iconography on their album covers and such uh, from what I was seeing. But still, it still pisses me off that Captain America isn't going to be fighting Nazis this summer. Um, I just feel like he should be. I'm sorry. Call me a purist. Yeah, especially uh, in
0: World War II. I mean... <laughs> I don't think that's even being a purist or a nitpicker. I think that's just, come on, that's common sense. You know, I mean, that's why he became Captain America.
1: <laughs> but, um, but, th- I'm glad they printed this letter, because it shows, okay, at least they're they're trying to show the other side. But still, it's just, the whole thing is just completely wrong-headed. And it just, when I read it, I was like, literally, throughout the entire letter, I'm saying out loud are you fucking kidding me right are you fucking kidding me
0: this guy would have a legitimate beef if all star squadron took place in 1982 and and all germans were nazis but come on it's a period piece that takes place in world war ii the you know there were nazis you know how stupid is this guy
1: i don't know i just it's just amazing uh I just like his
0: name, because his name totally sounds like you'd look him up in a history book, and there he'd be in his Nazi uniform, you know? it's just.
1: So, uh, Roy Thomas' response to this was, it's always been our intention to do precisely what the last sentence of your letter suggests, uh, Heino, but only at some still indefinite future date. Post-Democratic Germans, at least in Germany proper, had little outlet for either their voices or their actions in the period covered in All-Star Squadrons. Still, we feel... Uh, You err when you suggest that we're trying to say that all Germans were Nazis. It's simply that the the battling all-stars are unlikely to run into non-Nazi Germans except as non-combatants living in areas such as, say, New York City's Yorkville section at the time. And while that is in the offing as well, it may not be for some issues yet. We must admit, he continues, though, that we feel that the quote-unquote persistent focus on the fate of six million mostly civilian Jews in Europe, a goodly percentage of the war's casualties by any reckoning, does not in any way show, as you claim, a blatant lack of historical balance. (laughs) It's been well established historically that hatred for Russia and for the Jews were the two most consistent tenets of Nazism. At least the Russians had their own armies to defend them, but the Jews were imprisoned and often killed by men who, at rock bottom, were no more German or European than themselves. In our minds, and despite such murderous acts on those committed by Russia against the Poles in such places as the Katyn Forest, the aptly named Holocaust, so dwarfs most other atrocities of World War Two that we can never apologize for considering not Germans, but Nazism, and those who uh, espoused it to have been the greatest curses of humankind. And lest you wonder about Roy's own ethnic origins, it's never been anything uh, he's been either especially proud of or ashamed of, but his great-grandparents on both sides came to this country from Germany. And, uh, yeah, so, there you go. (laughs) That's the most nicely worded fuck-off I've ever read. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Yeah, you, uh, you can go straight to hell, is what you can do, you you asshole. (laughs) I, I, you know, it seems like I devoted a lot of time to that, but it's just, when something like that happens, it just gets under my skin and it stays there. Like, like I'll be doing, I'll like read it and rail against it and I'll go about with my day and I'll be in the middle of cleaning the dishes or something and turn, look up and go, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a sensitive lad who was raised on 80 sitcoms. I can't help but be, you know, mindful of such things, but still, you know, you can't get around the fact that the Nazis were bad people. And and and, oh, and Come on. And, they were just I guess, misunderstood. I guess the argument here is that, you know, it's it's like one of the things that people like to bring up about America and their um poor decisions in world war Two was like the dresden bombing where you know a bunch of civilians were killed and and i understand that but i'm sure if you act a, a, axed <laughs> i'm sure if you asked you know the the people of poland they'd be like you can go fuck yourselves that's <laughs> what you can do right now <laughs> or the people of france or you know or any of the other occupied countries of um of uh, you know that the Nazis took over. And I, I know a lot of people want to say that, for example, more people died under Stalin's rule of USSR of the you know of the USSR. But still, you know, <laughs> when when six million people just disappear off the face of the earth, that's something that people are going to remember. Uh, No matter what the naysayers and the conspiracy theorists would like us to believe, and I think Scott and I have gone on record on our opinion of conspiracy theorists, (laughs) especially in certain things of historical significance, I won't bring it up again, Scott. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Because
1: if I bring up the moon landing, you're just going to get pissed. Oh, don't start with me. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, Ads. Uh, we actually have some interesting... Maybe ass-
0: that's it. Maybe the Jews all went to the moon. I hadn't really thought about that before.
1: <laughs> I'd hate to be the asshole that believes that neither happened, so... <laughs> His worldview must suck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're going to get emails on this section, but I don't really care. <laughs> I don't feel bad about insulting Nazis. I'm sorry. No, I... I mean, come on. <laughs> they're the bad guys um, we got a frogger I tell you what,
0: though, but it takes either incredible balls or incredible stupidity to write in anywhere and try to make a case for the Nazis <laughs> you know, <laughs> to, 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 oh, try, you know was... to basically speak up and say hey, come on they weren't so bad you know I mean, I don't know that that's exactly what he was doing. And I, was I, I to sort assist. of understand his beef, but at the same rate, it's like, I'm sorry, but in this particular case, I think you just need to sit down and shut up, you know? <laughs> I think you just need to learn to deal with the fact that, yeah, you're always going to be looked at askance, uh, you know?
1: Well, th- the other thing, too, is it's, it's like people who are like, well, you know, we don't want to offend the Japanese by showing the bombing of Pearl Harbor. It's like, sorry, it happened. I'm sorry if you feel bad about what your grandparents did, but you really can't shy away from the fact that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, right?
0: Yeah. Well, anything <laughs> it was in a few like that. newspapers. See that now we we're, we're, we risk running into to to real world present day politics, but anything like that tends to seriously piss me off when. You know, because it's like denying the Holocaust, you know? Mm -hmm. We're experiencing something very similar like that in our world today, where there's a certain group that people don't like labeled as villains. Well, I'm sorry, they did a very villainous thing a couple of years ago and killed 3,000 innocent people. So, you know, if some of us want to look at them as villains, well, I think we're perfectly fucking justified to do that, but... Anyway, I think that's enough on that subject before we get into dark territory. So,
1: um, ads uh, inside uh, front cover: we have a Frogger ad for the uh, yes the the home version for your Atari computer system and your and the Sears Video Arcade. Um, th- nope. They've actually built something, Scott, for the iPad where you uh-huh. can turn it. Uh, instead of looking at it horizontally, you turn it up vertically, and you put it in a little stand, and you can play old school arcade games. Oh,
0: that would be <laughs> sweet.
1: I, I love I love taking modern technology and playing things,
0: making it totally retro. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh,
1: we got a Bubble Yum ad. Well, going back to this frog. Oh, ad I'm sorry.
0: A minute. Um, when, when I was a kid still living in upstate New York I lived in a tiny little town it was literally one of those like you know blink and you miss it towns and uh, our next door well actually they were our neighbors across the street very sweet elderly couple they were the Burtons and uh, I'm not sure how old they were at the time but to me as a kid they, they seemed ancient you know I mean they were elderly they were really up there and I remember Mrs. Burton Evelyn Burton here was this little old lady and and you know most little old ladies I ever knew they were you know if they had any sort of addiction, it was like crocheting or something or watching their their stories on the television. nope, her addiction frogger she was totally addicted to Atari frogger, and so i when I came across this ad it just it it, it brought back fond memories, but also made me a little sad because she she's she 's been gone now for a number of years, but I remember going over to her house and she would actually loan me video games from time to time, you know? So I had this elderly, sweet little old lady across the street loaning me video games. That's where I got addicted to, like, Yars Revenge. I loved that game. But well, she would not give up, Frogger. She would not loan out that game.
1: There, and that was the last time period you're going to find that kind of thing, too, of the, of, the old, of the elderly person into the modern technology because you know I, I one of the facets of my job is that i sell computers and i sit there and 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 and, and i'm going to say this not to offend any of our uh, listeners who may be up there in years but 90% of the old people that come into the store look at the computers like they're freaking magic or something like ooh look at the pretty displays it's like <laughs> and it, like like there's no scientific principles behind what's going on on the screen it just happens but every once in a while you get a get an older guy that was there when you know like the the altair was coming out in 76 You know, the first personal computer that was nothing but a box with dip switches. (laughs) That you flip the switches in a certain row, and that was the binary code that made the computer light up, the little box light up in a certain way. Right. You know, kind of bizarre for us now, but back then it was just like, oh, my God, you know, to the people that were into uh, into such things but yeah there was there was always at least one elderly person that like bought an Atari in the 80s or, or like later in the late 80s and the early 90s who had a Nintendo that loved to sit there and watch it it's like my my grandfather my, my uh, both of my grandfathers are dead but my dad's dad uh, loved the VCR like from the moment it came out he taped <laughs> movies all the time. Whereas I'm sure most of his contemporaries were like, "What is this magic box?" So, right. <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm always fascinated by hearing stories like that, where like like you got the woman who, like you said, would would you know like should be like my grandmother, um, my, my dad's mom, who was making Cabbage Patch dolls in the early '80s, <laughs> um, because you know those came around like right here in Georgia, right?
0: Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, before they get big, and and old women were like beating each other to death, and over them. Uh, my grandmother was actually making them one. She made me a incredible Hulk um, Cabbage Patch doll.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to change that kid's diaper. I'm telling you, it's it's
1: a it's, uh, it, it was a it was a little it was it was all green and he had like really. Like, the hair was all over the place, and he had ripped up clothing on and purple pants and
0: everything. That's funny.
1: I wish I would have kept it. I don't I was know just going
0: to say, do you still have... I'd love no. to see pictures of that. The
1: only thing I have that she made me was the Superman latch hook of the symbol. I still have that. <laughs> it's in the other room. Uh, we have the new Capsella construction. This was that weird bubble thing uh, that I remember... What beam. page is this on? Uh, cross from page 8. Oh, okay. I, I remember seeing these and never really liking them because of the construction of it.
0: Oh, yeah. So, they kind of remind me vaguely of, of uh, Micronauts vehicles.
1: A little bit, but not as exciting because Micronauts were cool. Right. Uh, we got a boring Lifesavers ad. I'm not really sure it's apparently you're supposed to throw your candy away to play a game. Whereas if I had <laughs> lifesavers, I'd eat them. So, then uh, <laughs> they talk about the lifesavers, lollipops. My wife still absolutely loves those. Um, another Remco ad for Sergeant Rock across from page 18, uh, for the action figure. Man, <laughs> <laughs> man, <Meh>. Remco. <laughs> We're only sold in Kmart. um, Across from page 22, you can enter the Swamp Thing movie contest. What was the grand prize? A free trip to New York City and a tour of the D.C. office and to meet with Swamp Thing's creators. Hmm. 100 second prizes. One year subscription to our Swamp Thing comic book. Good luck! 100 third prizes. 100 copies of Tor Books' well,
0: official... Well, this, this would be the later one. This would be the, the saga of, which, which yeah. ran for quite a ways.
1: Yeah, but this would also be around the time if they won the subscription, it would be like the issues, like ten through twenty, which you and Chris. Oh,
0: have- I see what you saying. Yeah, yeah, not not the best reading material. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
1: um, on the back cover, on the inside back cover, you have a Olympic thing. And on the back cover, you have a Dungeons and Dragons adventure. <laughs> With
0: that I cover. like that that art because it really does remind me of uh, of early Burn, like from the uh, the Charlton days,
1: like the Doomsday Doomsday Plus, plus One, one yeah. and all that. Yeah, yeah. I can yeah. see that. Uh, yeah, the early Dungeons and Dragons ads really. Most of the artwork, though, sucked, as we've talked about before. And Roy Thomas does mention in the letters. Uh, Panel in his little special introductory note that there is an All Star Squadron annual currently on sale, which we will be covering as soon as this story is over with. Alrighty, elsewhere in the DC multiverse for the book's cover dated October 1982, courtesy, as usual, of Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, www.dcindexes.com. Though, uh, have you checked out Mike's Amazing World of Marvel Comics yet?
0: Yeah, yeah, I have a couple of times now. Yeah.
1: A, it's becoming fast a invaluable resource to me in my current reading projects. Um what do we got here? We got an adventure comics was it a diet yeah, it was a digest by this point, wasn't yeah. it?
0: Yeah, yeah, it was. I love this cover. And one half of it is uh the Shazam story that's inside, and then the other half is a classic Legion story. Great cover, but uh I really like the Shazam have I mean I don't recall having seen much uh Captain Marvel by Keith Giffen and that that's really awesome. I like that, but yeah, really nice cover and I was looking in my uh collection to see if I had this one i I do have it i just I don't remember the you know what goes on inside, but
1: I really have no desire to read it, but I like the cover to Blackhawk number two fifty one It's a good shot of the team. Running at you with a bunch of planes behind them.
0: Oh, it's a Dave Cockrum too. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that I is don't a think good he cover. did the. In- I don't think he did the interior. I think somebody we don't like did the interior. Ah, yeah, Spiegel. Dan
0: Spiegel. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you nailed it. <laughs>
1: there we go. Speaking of people we don't care for, uh, DC Comics presents number fifty, where Superman teams up with Clark Kent to fight the Atomic Skull.
0: I like the Atomic Skull. He's cool. He's a good old fashioned goofy ass villain I like him
1: it's kind of funny because last night we, uh, we've we just gotten on, F- on From Crisis to Crisis where the new Atomic Skull was introduced So
0: I liked him I thought he was cool he was again nice goofy character
1: um, Warlord Annual Number 1 with a beautiful Mike Grell cover yes um, I like the Batman cover to 352 as well uh, of him falling out of a plane Mm-hmm. It's really not a whole lot this month.
0: Oh, actually, I thought there was there were several of them. Uh, I mean, there's
1: some good I have, ones. I like but... this
0: cover on. I, don't ask me why, because it's very like cartoony. But I like that cover to uh, Wonder Woman right there. Wonder Woman two ninety six by Ernie. I never known how you pronounce this guy's name. Is it colon? I always say colon. colon? I guess it, I guess it could be colon colon colon. I'm not sure, but. Uh, don't usually like his art too much, but uh, I do like that cover. It's an issue I actually have, but I don't think I've ever read it. I'm pretty sure that one has stayed in my uh, unread box all these years.
1: No, I don't want you to think I'm picking on you, but how is that issue of Jonah Hex?
0: I don't... Or see, th- this This era right here is, is just... It's that gray period right after... Mm-hmm. All right, spoiler alert, but... Uh, in in number 50 his wife leaves him which that that's like for me it was almost like the pinnacle of Jonah I really like that issue after that they were trying to like return to the old formula you know and and get hex back kind of to his roots of just you know one off adventures and and bounty hunting and 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 it was one of those things where it was hard to go home again because okay. they they had gone from that kind of storytelling to more episodic storytelling, you know, with having Hex get hitched, you know, and have a family and all that. And I just find that particular era, it's kind of forgettable. You know what I mean? It's not that it's bad, don't get me wrong, because I still enjoy it, but it's just, it went back to kind of like, you know, cowboy stories again. And it was like, you know, I liked it better when, when it seemed like we were going somewhere. So...
1: Now I am a big fan of the Wolfman Perez New Teen Titans mm-hmm. uh, series. I really didn't care for the Black <laughs> Star storyline. I mean, that cover to twenty four is great, mm-hmm. but I just didn't really care for them going off into space and fighting the Gordanians. And
0: see, I've been waiting to talk about this. I've been waiting to make it to this because I knew it was coming up. Um, you know, in this segment. This was my introduction to the Wolfman and Perez new time. This issue, of course, and I think I picked it up for two reasons. For well, actually, for three reasons. Because for one, gorgeous cover. I love yes uh, Perez's Robin. He made Robin cool to me. This is why I'm a huge defender of the classic. You know. Uh, you know, fairy boots or whatever you want to call him, uh, Robin costume. I just I love it, and I love it because of Perez's art. He made it look like an awesome costume.
1: He was to me, and I've said this before, and I'll probably be saying it again. Um, he was the first one to give it layers,
0: right? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, especially when he would show him in various states of the costume being on. Like sometimes he would just be hanging on with the green jumpsuit and the the red vest open. Right. But he also he made it seem like the cape was actually a cape and had a collar to it. The right. you know it had a, the, like the costume took on a three D effect almost with where it, you know it's like Aparo drew a great Robin and of course Neil Adams did too, but for some reason it was Perez that made that costume pop for me uh, when I would when I first discovered these new Teen Titans books. So I'm in complete right. agreement with you on that. I you're, you're absolutely right. He is why I like the classic fairy boots or pixie boots, Rob.
0: Pixie boots, that was it. That was what I was trying. I knew it wasn't fairy boots. I couldn't remember. Pixie boots, that's it. Well, the other two reasons I picked this up was I, I had a short um, flirtation and, and fascination with the Omega Men, which didn't last long, but at this time I, I thought that they were really cool and was I was picking up their appearances because they were brand new at this point. And also, most important reason, you open this book up and very first page, Superman by George Perez, which was still a novelty at that time. You know, he hadn't done a whole lot of Superman. And uh, this was also loosely tied in, you know, there's no like banner, you know, advertising it or anything. But it was tied directly into the Superman story that was going on at that time in action comics where Superman had been halved. He'd been split into two physical beings, both of them with half of his powers. And it was really cool because the Titans had actually gone to him in this story and were like, Superman, we really need your help. And he's like, I I wish I could help you guys, but I'm half the superman i used to be kind of thing superman rarely appeared in new teen titans and it was just a treat you know it was really a treat to see him there and and i always liked superman and robin together don't ask me why just superman and dick grayson hanging out together just i don't know it was just one of those geek things i always really like so yeah i agree with you looking back at that story I'm not a fan of the cosmic yeah, whether it's Marvel or whether it's DC I just don't really like the cosmic stuff so the rest of that story is largely forgettable to me but that uh-huh. this issue will always be one of my favorites simply for the nostalgia value of it you know just just for the the special place it holds you know in my heart as as the first issue I picked up and and discovered them and was like wow this is great stuff
1: it was also one of those stories where I didn't find it annoying when I read it because I had all the issues, but it ends in an annual. Right. And that's a cool way to make the annual special, but if I was picking these books off about the newsstand, that probably would have pissed me off if I couldn't find the annual because yeah, maybe the grocery store or the 7-Eleven... Or the Walden books or whatever didn't carry it.
0: A lot of newsstands and spinner racks did not carry annuals. Mm-hmm. You're right.
1: I mean, I lucked out because uh, for some reason, by the time I started buying books off the spinner rack, uh, at least one place, sometimes Seven Eleven, sometimes the Superfresh, would have annuals. Uh, but usually, I read the annual. There was a there was an out and out newsstand in the Trexler Town Mall too where I uh haunted for comics and uh they usually carried annuals but they usually carried everything but you had to get there because you know I wasn't the only kid in town buying comics from this place so ah the glory days <laughs> The salad years. That Batman cover to Batman Annual number 8 is cool. I've never read the story, but it's a nice Batman cover.
0: I I looked this up to see if I have this issue, and strangely, my Batman Annual collection starts with the next one, with number 9. So, uh, like yourself, I've never read this one. Uh, I have no idea what goes on in it. But, yeah, it is a cover, a cool cover. It's by uh, Trevor Von Eden, an artist I don't usually like, but, uh, yeah, it is. It's a really cool cover couple other things i wanted to point out there in that same column is uh is a crappy issue of uh saga the swamp thing that's when that that series really started to go seriously downhill they got into just some really lame territory but that superman uh 376 don't ask me why but i remember this issue very well um it was an elliot s megan story where uh Something happens to Perry White, he gets like critically injured. And I remember Superman goes to um the hospital where he is and he's like at his bedside and everything and Perry asked for one of his cigars and superman actually gives him a cigar. Now here he is in the hospital in the it was his in, super his, cigars. Yeah, it was. It turned out to be one of his super cigars. Mm-hmm. And that just opened <laughs> up this whole new world for me as as a young reader, you know, that Wow, this was referencing a story way back. I mean, that story went back what? like thirty years or something, something to, like that. yeah, where he had gotten <laughs> these space cigars from like this grateful alien race or something that that gave him superpowers when he smoked. It was like, talk about your stories that wouldn't happen today. <laughs> you know but it was really it was really cool,
1: especially over at Marvel because no one smokes at Marvel now. Oh God. Do you remember when that happened?
0: Yeah, I remember yeah. hearing about it. Nice cover on... Man, I, I love these Warlord covers.
1: Yeah, you know, Warlord is one of those story series that I always kind of am interested in reading in, but then I go to do it, and I'm like, wait, I hate sword and sorcery. But it could be the exception to the rule.
0: It could be. I, one of these days I need to check it out, because I picked up a ton of them on the cheap... Uh, oh, yeah. Some of
1: the, the, the after show? like uh, I'm sorry I'm sorry after, after I didn't mean to interrupt you but after issue 13 those are 50 cent books oh in yeah freaking way you can I bought like half the series for like five bucks at a show yeah so
0: yeah I, I picked up a ton of them um, at the old Carrollton flea market years ago and uh, I picked them up strictly because they were Mike Grell you know I, I just I love his artwork and all. But it was one of those things where I picked them up and and I'm glad I got them on the cheap because it was one of those things where I knew they were just going to sit in a box. You know, I'll I'll likely you know, never really get to them, but it's just, you know, how can you pass them up? They're gorgeous. You know, when you find them for like a quarter or something, you know, I just can't pass up stuff like that. So it's much like this. I'm looking at this house of mystery right here. I don't know. One of these days I might make it to them, but I, I, again, I got those largely because they just have gorgeous covers by Mike Kaluta on the, uh, the I vampire stuff, you know? And, uh, I read one of those issues. I think it was the first Eye Vampire story in House of Mystery for uh, a Back to the Bins. I mean, it was okay. I remember that, but it wasn't one of those ones where I was going to be like, okay, you know, I gotta read the rest. It was like, nah, yeah, you know. Oh, it, it, it,
1: I remember you talking about it, describing the plot, and me going, "Why isn't the CW like doing a series about this?" Right? Yeah. I mean, seriously, that you know, <laughs> it would do well. If you cast some like pretty. Pretty boy lead into it, and you have the basis of the story. But you know, might might work out at least as like a TV movie. It I mean, had to be you... better than that Lone Ranger film they put out years ago.
0: Oh, I never did see that. I heard it was terrible, though. I'm, I'm actually I'm quite. Worried about the the Disney one that's going to be coming out soon. I'm I'm nervous as hell about that one because I like the Lone Ranger. I would I would consider myself a fan, although I have to admit, you know, I'm I'm like a fair weather fan. I don't know a lot about him. It's not like I followed him religiously or anything. He's just one of those characters I think is is interesting, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, have you been to a bookstore lately? I mean, they have a, a, a section now that rivals the the manga section. For these, you know, these young girl fantasy vampire books. I mean, it, it, there's a zillion of them. It's like, why is DC not cashing in? Um, yeah, you know, something like I Vampire and, and riding that wave of young girls being fascinated by vampires. I just, I don't get it. Maybe, they'll probably do like Marvel used to do, and they'll they'll do it just as the fad is just about over, all of a sudden they'll release a book about it, you know.
1: I'm going to tangent us just for a second to give you some good news on the manga war front. Um, As many people who listen to this show and other shows that Scott and I are on, they know that we don't really care for manga. Uh, We don't begrudge anyone liking it. But I think the one thing that sticks in both of our craws is that the manga section usually takes up like three quarters of the store. Right. Well, I went into the Books-A-Million couple weeks ago to pick up a calendar for Rachel and half the manga section was gone <laughs> in, it, in its place nothing but Star Wars stuff
0: awesome
1: <laughs> I figured that'd make you happy
0: <laughs> it does it makes me very happy
1: it's it, it's it's like there was a war between manga and Star Wars and, and Star Wars you know like came in like you know Sherman burning Atlanta <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, yeah, that was uh, that was funny as hell.
0: I love this cover to Green Lantern one fifty seven because it features my favorite big headed freak, Hector Hammond on it. That's, that's Who's like-
1: going to be in the movie?
0: Oh, that's right, I forgot about that. Yeah. I don't know. I you know, I'll, I'll have to wait and hear things about that. But from what I've seen so far, not particularly impressed with the uh, with the Green Lantern movie. But you never know. I mean, I do like me some Hector Hammond, so. Might have to check that out.
1: I like this Keith Giffen World's Finest Yeah. cover with the composite Superman. And I always figured Batman would be pretty pissed that he was called the composite Superman. <laughs> yeah. <I know. laughs> Wait a second.
0: I'm half of this guy. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, you know that was. This is what I remember. This being one of those great disappointment comics where you look at the cover and you're like, "Oh my god, this is <laughs> awesome!" It's it's the Legion of Superheroes by Giffen. You know, at the time when they were you know they were a big shit. Cover of world's finest battling a giant composite Superman, and then you open it up, and I think it's like George Tuska on the art, and I was like, "Nah." <laughs> Uh, see, he's not that guy. bad. Man, he's alright, I guess, but... What else have we got here? Uh, that's about... well. there's that Action Comics 536. Again, I, I stress, people should really seek this out and read it. It's a good storyline. I really like that storyline.
1: It guest it stars the Omega Men, and it does that little cute cover trick that was popular in the 70s and 80s where you would have the heads of some of the characters, in this case the uh, Primus and couple other members of the Omega Men whose names escape me are watching the action on the rest of the cover.
0: Isn't the big uh, dumb guy's name was like Brute or something like something that? Something like
1: that. You yeah. know, the Omega Man. I have an entire run of the series. I don't know if I'm ever going to read it. <laughs> Simply because DC Cosmic really doesn't interest me beyond Green Lantern. And it, it, it's kind of the same with Marvel where... Unless it involves, you know, sometimes Thanos, but usually, you know, the Infinity Gauntlet is as cosmic as I really want to get. Right. Uh, with that company, and you know, the FF is is you know cosmic all the way, but they're still grounded in superheroes. You know, they they still have the costumes and everything. So right. Um, yeah, just not a really big fan of. <laughs>
0: yeah mean of uh, the cosmic
1: stuff and i don't know why i guess it, it goes to the fact that i am not a big fan of space opera type science fiction i mean star wars gets the pass because i grew up with it you know that 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 wasn't a genre to me that was omnipresent in my life when i was a kid right uh, so you know i don't see that as being i see that as separate as well do a lot of hardcore science fiction fans from what I understand as being separate from kind of science fiction
0: yeah see I've never seen Star Wars as science fiction i you know to me it's it's space fantasy you know it's it's well, it's, it's actually in a class all of its own you pretty know much.
1: and while Star Trek is is rooted in science fiction and they go to different worlds you know when, especially when you watch the classic trek it was always really grounded in in things that I could, for lack of a better term, relate to. You know, when you watch Classic Trek, they go to, like, Roman times on a planet, or gangsters, or Nazis, or, you know, City on the Edge of Forever. And even when Next Gen would go to another planet, it it always looked like, you know, because it was an M-class planet, it looked kind of like Earth, Right, so it's not like Legion of Superheroes, which has like these super cities in the future and stuff, where I look at that and I kind of get lost because it's almost overwhelming. I, 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 for me, in reading fiction, I need something that I can kind of hook onto, to relate to. It's why I prefer Superman stories, where Metropolis looks like a real city and Superman's flying around. Whereas I didn't like it when Metropolis was the city of the future because it's like, uh, you know, wh- why the hell is Superman special here? Everything's awesome. They got flying cars for Christ's sake.
0: Yeah, I didn't <laughs> like that whole that whole era. I couldn't wait for them to, to switch it back.
1: So, but but I mean, you know, as I always say, I do not begrudge those that do. You know, if the, if the, you know, I know a lot of people who. Uh, a Good friend of mine is into hardcore science fiction, uh, where they go full frontal. So, that was a really bad joke. I that apologize. was a bad joke. <laughs> but, uh, no, and, and, and to bring it back to what we were talking about, it's why I never really got into the Omega Man, And it's why, as much as I like these issues of action comics, because you're right, that, that Wolfman knocked it out of the freaking park in his pre-crisis Superman run on action. It was just... It was just a phenomenal bunch of storylines, but it's like when the Omega Men was there. it's was like, "God damn it, are the Omega Men here again?" <laughs> <laughs> just, can't Wolfman, okay, they're going to give them their own series soon, and you're not going to write it. What the hell is that all about? But he created that team and then pushed it down our throats. Really, <laughs> at least that's what it felt like.
0: Did he? Uh, was he writing Green uh, Lantern when they yes, uh, he debuted and Green... created that oh, okay. team?
1: Huh. And that's why he carried them over. Wolfman and Claremont do that. Right. If you followed Chris Claremont, he would bring things from, like, his Iron Fist run into X-Men, and then he would bring X-Men elements when he wrote Fantastic Four in the late 90s. Right. It's like they come up with these characters, and they really don't want to let them go. And I don't blame them, but it's just like, you know you're reading a Wolfman-written Superman issue because the Omega Men show up. <laughs>
0: Well, I kind of like that, though. I mean, it gives you an insight into the, those writers when you can kind of yeah. tell their stamp when when they bring their their favorite elements, you know, to where wherever it is they're working. I mean, you you kind of get that with the Star Trek novels, you know, because they all kind of happen in their own separate authors' continuity, and they're not interconnected. When when you read. You know, a particular author, you can always tell because they'll bring certain characters or certain elements. I, I kind of like that sort of thing. It, it gives, you know, it has a has unique feel and their unique stamp on it because you can sometimes depend on getting, you know, those elements, like you say, that go from work to work. I, I like that sort of thing.
1: But that's pretty much it for me on uh, on the covers and everything. Not, not a terrible month, but not the... Uh... That what I would call my favorite of what we've talked about. Right. Uh, taking a quick look at the next month, there's a lot more to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> um, emails. You want me to start off on this one, or do you want to kick us off for this? Oh, episode? go ahead. All right, we've got we've got three emails. They were supposed to be one, but apparently there were some technical difficulties on the part of the email writer, uh, Dan Higa. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It might be Higa or Higa. So, I apologize if I'm screwing up your name. Uh, This is, uh, the email thing is episode 34. He writes, just wanted to say that I am a fan of many of both of your various podcasts, but I do have a particular fondness for Earth 2 stories, so I wanted to write in. Just a few ramblings. One, the adopted kid Johnny Thunder was referring to in All-Star Squad 5 was a little girl named Peachy Pet. I believe that she was a recurring character in Johnny's Flash Comics run up until it ended in 47 or 48. Don't hold me to that, though. I have read only three or four Johnny Thunder stories in my life and have had to stop myself from banging my head against the wall until the brain cells that hold those memories were destroyed. (laughs) (laughs) The last time Peachy was mentioned was in the 90s JSA series when it turned out that she had started a successful yogurt shop franchise. The Bandanesian girl you were referring to was the creation of the 90s JSA series, and I wish that DC decided to continue that character as opposed to Jakeem Thunder, who I cannot stand.
0: Amen.
1: Uh, I never really cared either way. As far as I'm concerned, the only justification for the JT character in that series introduced the Black Canary, the Johnny Thunder character in that series. Uh, Yeah, Johnny Thunder was the first one to run across Black Canary. It's kind of the hot veronica lake girl that he had a crush on but you know never gave him a tumble as you know gwen stacy would say (laughs) figured you'd find that funny speaking of which i'm going to tangent us again sir what is it like talking about the same comic for two different podcasts what asm number 33 you were on asm classics recently Mm -hmm. talking about an issue of Amazing Spider-Man that you also covered on Back to the Bins.
0: (laughs) I know.
1: know. (laughs) Did I mention that, by the way? Uh, I haven't gotten through all the episode yet, so you might have, and and I just haven't gotten to it yet.
0: I have the worst feeling I never mentioned that fact that I'd already (laughs) talked about it on Back to the Bins.
1: Because I remember when you bought that issue, you were all excited. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Two, uh, uh, David continues, there is, to my knowledge, only one team team up of the Earth 1 and Earth 2 Superman. Uh, in Superman Family 186 to 187, there are a two-part story where the Earth-1 soups was letting his eccentric scientist friend, Professor Potter, sort of an earlier version of Emil Hamilton, experiment with a JLH dimensional transporter up in the satellite. At the same time on Earth-2, original soups was desperately searching for a cure for his friend, Earth-2 Jimmy Olsen, who was suffering from a fatal degenerative organ condition. Cal L without the E realizes that while there is no one on Earth-2 who is a genetic mac, Match for Jimmy. Jimmy has an Earth-1 counterpart who they can use to create a replacement organ and save his friend. I have this image of Superman showing up to Jimmy Olsen on Earth-1, spiking his drink, and Jimmy wakes up in a hotel bathroom full of ice, and he's missing a kidney.
0: I see it more like that scene at the beginning of Terminator where he just, like, plunges his fist into <laughs> Earth-1 Jimmy Olsen's chest and takes out what he needs. <laughs> yeah. Now, this, by the way, is a story that I covered way back when on uh, on, on Two True Freaks, because yes, that I was the that. story where I pointed out that uh, you know, despite Superman, you know, constantly saying that he had a code against killing, he doesn't he seem to have a problem taking out the villain of that story. He he actually does kill the guy. He blows him up real good. So. Uh,
1: David continues, this reminds me of the letters of transit from Casablanca. Moving on to the next email. Anyway, Earth-2 spe- Superman speeds to JSA headquarters and uses the transporter to head to Earth-1. There is a malfunction, and a being named Grog or Krog or something takes kal place and ends up on Earth-1, where he proceeds to easily defeat Earth-1 Superman. The Earth-2 Superman shows up then and is knocked out in one blow. Callen and Callel are at a loss as what to do until Professor Potter, being a genius, decides that the only thing to do is to use the transporter to temporarily merge the counterpart into one giant superman once this is done (laughs) superman one and two has 30 minutes to stop grog before they explode turns out grog is more powerful so kal L decides that grog has too much power so the only way to beat him is to lead grog out to the grand canyon while constantly hitting them with their heat vision until he explodes there is no mention of Earth, Superman Earth-1's code against killing. I know Kal-El has two, uh, Earth one, Earth two, the Earth-2 Superman has one, two, but I always thought that he was more pragmatic Kryptonian and the Earth suffered no damage from the uncontained open-air explosion of an alien more powerful than two Superman. They make it back to the satellite with 30 seconds to spare. Find Earth-1 Jimmy and get him back to Earth-2 to save himself. Sorry for that long synopsis, but I imagine... Finding the story would be difficult. I might try to find it in my collection and scan it. I can't remember. Continuing uh, to the next one. Um, Kurt Swan did the art with two different inkers on each part. There was a nice detail with the art. Specifically, the merged Superman had gray temples on one side and (laughs) and the amalgamated S-shield. There was also a Firestorm-type internal dialogue where the Earth-2... Uh, Superman was called by the the Kal-El of Earth-1, and Kal-El was called Superman. This was also before it was decided that Superman had different cape lengths. Story also stated that the counterparts had equal power before DC editorial mandated that every two <laughs> Earth-2 hero was inferior in power and skill to an Earth-1 counterpart. A fun story, if flawed, the cover of the second part has, I believe, a fantastic Jose, L- Jose Luis Garcia Lopez cover. Yes, it does. And, but that wasn't the only team-up, because we covered DC Comics Annual Number One, or DC Comics Presents Annual Number One on Back to the Bins recently. Yep. Or several months ago. (laughs) (laughs) Three, the Earth One and Earth Two Batman never met. Earth Two Bruce had a cameo in an early team up, but only stayed on Earth Two and only participated actively in the nonsensical Earth S crossover. The closest uh, meeting ever came was in Brave and the Bold, number 200. It is ridiculous that in adventures where Johnny Thunder and Robin met their duplicates, Batman was never allowed. Well, you know, really, what were they going to do? Stare at each other? Fight.
0: I don't know, I, you know, I, I guess it just never even occurred to me, but I think, I think he's right, because I can't think of a time where they were in the same story together.
1: I mean, hey, what's it like to have your parents uh, killed in front of you? (laughs) Dressed up like a bad two? Wow, we have so much in common.
0: I'm actually kind of glad it didn't happen because for some reason I I can see the same thing playing out with those two that kind of sort of played out with Earth 1 and Earth 2 Superman in some story i think it was that dc comics presents annual where super you know earth 2 superman was like you know you really ought to you know settle down and marry your lois lane and all. i can almost see that happening
1: you know you really, really ought to you really ought to marry that cat woman yeah, yeah. really yeah really can i nail your daughter um <laughs> <laughs> it's not technically incest um Number 4 The people of Gotham knew their Batman was dead Because Dr. Fate was able to heal the damage Vox did to reality But made a few alterations in that reality People saw both Bruce Wayne and Batman die in the final battle And there were even separate bodies for burial 5 When you were looking at the Alan Scott 70's Green Lantern's adventures Did anyone notice that he looked younger than Hal? In fact, Alan never showed his age until Infinity Incorporated Always wondered about that it's kind of odd. He kind of looks a little older in the story we're going to be covering in next episode. Mm-hmm. But uh, six, how do you decide which stories to review?
0: The ones that don't suck.
1: <laughs> I was wondering if you would look at some of the early individual team-ups between counterparts from the 60s. I would think that the Krona Green Lantern story should be done, which you bought a copy of at a flea market. Uh, about a year or so back Yep uh, You can probably ignore the rest of the GL team-ups As the only thing that, thing to uh, recommend to them is the Gil Kane art Though I do enjoy the idea of Sinestro possessing Doyby Dickles' cab and the story where Alan Scott gets fed up with the human race Commands his ring to remove all evil from Earth And transports every person from earth to to an uninhabited desert on Earth-1 Funny.
0: See, I, I, you know, we continue to get this question, and it just—I I guess somehow we—we've just failed in in properly stating our mandate. I think the whole reason we started with All Star Fifty Eight was that I don't know. For me, anyway, I—I I, I won't speak for the both of us, but for me, to me, that's just where all—that's that, where the Earth to justice society it's where they were good you know not you know no no offense to the old stuff i just i'm bored with the old stuff to me it it's it's that really old school style comic book writing that i really just don't like it's too silly campy you know i don't know you know i don't want to be down on it it's just i'm just really not interested in that stuff i've tried to suffer through it and i just find it to be too um not to my liking. So, I, I well, just, you know, my fascination with the JSA started with All-Star 58, you know, or, or that era, anyway. You know? Well,
1: it's it's where, like we've talked about before, it's, it's where Earth-2 was first explored more than, hey, the JSA is from this planet, let's have three panels where we show two Earths next to each other and the counterparts on either side. Right. Uh, you know, it's where they started playing with concepts like you know Dick Grayson is an ambassador to Africa which is different from Earth 1 where Bruce Wayne married Catwoman where Clark Kent married Lois Lane and it's not that those stories are bad but I'm kind of like you when uh, as much as I liked in that one episode of this seri- of the show where I covered you know Flash number 123 it took me freaking forever to read that issue just because they're right. so dense and that's not a bad thing because, it, you know, it, it, is a, it was the comics of the time. That's how they were. That's why people complain these days that it takes five seconds to read, you know, an issue of DC or Marvel, uh, a book from one of them. It, but to me, things like you, things only got interesting starting at 58. And we're on track with All-Star Squadron right now. And to deviate from that, to discuss solo stories... Uh, or things like that it it, it kind of distracts from what's going on we're covering Justice League over the next couple of issues episodes but that's because they tie into each other and we do have plans to keep up with that tradition to when we get to the JLA JSA crossover to talk about it but at the same time that's still kind of on point with the Justice Society and All-Star Squadron right because eventually we're getting to Infinity Incorporated, soon to be trade paperbacked, by the way, uh, which is kind of cool. I'm looking forward to seeing that on the shelf. Um, I have the issues, so I don't know if I'm going to buy it.
0: I mean, you know, we, we've tried a couple of times now. We, we've had, I guess in all fairness, you'd have to describe them as failed attempts. We've had a couple of failed attempts to you know reach out to some of that peripheral stuff and in most cases you know the the reason it didn't work the reason we ended up dropping the segments is you know either the stuff wasn't very good or it just felt like it was detracting from the main focus of the show or whatever you know there were there were various reasons i think that we're trying very hard to stay on point and you know for my own interest my own You know, when I listen to a show, I will gladly sacrifice authoritative podcasts for entertaining podcasts. And first and foremost, I want the show to be entertaining. I want you guys to enjoy listening to the show. And so while it would be nice to be the definitive, you know, go-to Justice Society podcast where we cover every single appearance and every single mention of members of the justice society you know if, if that comes at the expense of being really boring because you're covering some crappy issue somewhere then you know i'll take that sacrifice you know because i i, I want to be i want i i want the show to be fun i want it to be a good show to listen to and not just you know covering you know because there's a lot of that stuff that quite honestly if if we tried to to get it would just become drudgerous because there's just a lot of crap you know i'm sorry if you know those are fan favorite stories to somebody but you know there's just a lot of that stuff i just i really don't have a lot of interest in but you know that said there are some segments that i swear to god we'll find a way to get to them at some point you know because i still would like to cover like the the huntress stuff and you know, that that one Wonder Woman crossover, you know, with all the, the girl characters, you know, stuff like that. It's just, it'll, it'll have to happen somewhere, you know, in some tangent or some special or some Back to the Bins episode or something like that. I, I don't want it to bog down this show with, with that material at the moment.
1: Uh, out of the JLA-JSA team-ups, the only ones of importance I would suggest are the Aquarius story that brought Black Canary to Earth 1, the Freedom Fighter story, and the story that brought back the Seven Soldiers of Victory. Uh, finally, number seven, about Captain Triumph on the cover of issue one, I think Roy Thomas realized that the character never debuted until after World War II. <laughs> Sorry for the rambling. Love the podcast. David Higo. So thank you very much, David. And that's pretty much it for this episode. We'll have more emails next time out, uh, of course, as we are making an effort to get through the stack, quote-unquote, air quotes, um, that has piled up over the last couple of months. Um, As usual, this issue of All-Star Squadron has not been reprinted anywhere yet.
0: It hasn't, although I did have one note I wanted to throw out there. Uh okay. While this material has not sadly been reprinted, it has, however, been discussed in podcasting before. And uh, I wanted to give a shout-out to my buddy Tom Caters of Tom vs. the JLA. Uh, Google that, look it up, and uh, he did cover uh, this storyline when he uh, he's now doing... Uh, I think his show is now called Tom vs. Aquaman, which I've got to check out because I'm a big Aquaman fan. I want to see what he's doing. He, he started the show as Tom vs. the JLA, and then when he wrapped up uh, JLA, he went on to do Tom vs. the Flash. I guess that's all done now, and now he's doing Tom vs. Aquaman. Anyway after i read these chapters take all my notes um do synopses you know if it's my turn to do the synopsis all that stuff i've been listening to tom's show um just to to hear what he's saying about the issues and all so i i'm doing it that way so i can't be accused of ripping anything off from tom um but it's a lot of fun give it a listen if you want to hear a different take on the same material tom's show is really cool because He's got so much energy. He flies through the issues. His episodes are typically 12 minutes or less. And it's it's just a hoot to listen to somebody. I mean, he's very manic in the way that he presents his shows. So uh, give that a listen. You'll You'll enjoy it, I swear.
1: Thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America, hosted by Scott H. Gardner and Michael R. Bailey. If you like this show, check out Back to the Bins, where Mike and I talk about random back issues
0: from the past. You can find that at www2
1: com. Scott has another podcast that he hosts with his childhood friend and former personal masseuse and fry cook to Oprah Winfrey, Chris Honeywell called Two True Freaks, which, like Tales and Back to the Bins, can be found at com. Mike has a few other podcasts that he either hosts
0: or co-hosts because he loves the sound of his own voice as well. The first is Views from the Long Box, which is Mike's solo show and can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Then there's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor, which can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and
1: www.fortressofbailytune.com. Scott and I have gigantic egos, and we love to hear from the listeners.
0: You can reach the show by writing to JSA
1: at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next week for another installment of the Tales of the Justice Society of America.
0: read our podcast
1: read our podcast you do know this is an audio medium watch our podcast but you can watch podcasts but not ours because let's face it we've got faces for radio Uh, no wait i've got it give me a second right what just
0: listen to our podcast listen to our podcast snap it's short sweet i'm liking it. it's good it's great not exactly telling people what our podcast is about though is it you read comics we read comics, that's true, that's good, liking it, liking this pitch, carry on. Right, we talk about comics. We do, we talk about comics, we read comics, and then we talk about them, because we can't talk about them before we read them. Excellent, keep going. And then...
1: We sing... Badly! Yes, well, badly is purely subjective, but how many other comic book podcasts do you know where people sing...
0: is Comics! ...every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com <laughs> Let's get this show on the road, gang.
1: I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman.
0: monthly Mondays, available the third Monday of every month at two truefreaks.libson.com July
1: 1963 The Marvel Age of Comics was dawning First came the rise of the Fantastic Four Then came the Incredible Hulk, followed by the Amazing Spider-Man and the Mighty Thor But... The Marvel Age was about to give way to the Age of the Atom, and nothing would be the same. Was the world ready for the strangest superheroes of all, the X-Men? On June 3rd, you can go to the movie theater and see the evolution of the X-Men, or you can listen to Xavier's podcast for gifted youngsters, an X-Men podcast, and see how it really began. It's the Merry
0: Marvel Mutants, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, the Angel, the Beast, Iceman, and their mentor,
1: Professor Xavier, from the beginning, issue by issue. Every two weeks, join J. David Weider and Michael Bailey as they follow the X-Men saga from the creation to the first class and beyond. Gasp at the tyranny of Magneto, stand in the awe of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, marvel at the mystery of the Vanisher, and cower at the sight of the Submariner. all for the first time, panel by panel. On June 3rd, prepare for the children of the Atom at xavierspodcast.blogspot.com.